Welcome to Arkansas AgCast, your source for the latest news and views in Arkansas agriculture. Arkansas AgCast is produced by the Arkansas Farm Bureau Federation. Welcome to Arkansas AgCast for October 24th. I'm your host, John Bailey. This week, we talk to Natural Resource Commission Executive Director Bruce Holland about the work of the state's levy task force, and we hear from Tommy Jumper, Chief Executive Officer of Delta Peanut, LLC, who discusses the latest on the peanut industry in Arkansas. We also visit with participants in this year's livestock shows at the Arkansas State Fair. First up, Arkansas Farm Bureau's Greg Patterson caught up with Bruce Holland of the Arkansas Natural Resources Commission about his role on the state levy task force appointed by Governor Asa Hutchinson. He tells us what the task force has learned so far in their analysis of the Arkansas levies and what might be next in terms of recovery after this year's flooding and future improvements. This is Greg Patterson with Arkansas Farm Bureau and on this edition of Arkansas AgCast, we're speaking with Bruce Holland, the director of the Arkansas Natural Resource Commission. And Bruce, you're part of the agriculture department now, I need to throw that in there as well, but um, Tell us what's going on, the most up-to-date information that you have post-flooding about how Arkansas is, is dealing with uh, redoing levies and just the whole whole situation. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, as far as the update, right now, you know, the, the levy task force has been meeting, I guess, since it was formed. I think it was formed in, in July. And uh, we've been meeting monthly uh, with the big group and with the subcommittees. And we've kind of determined that the, the best way to try to shore up the, the levy system is to try to get them back in the core program. A lot of the levies have deteriorated to a level that the core won't grade them as acceptable. So what that means is if they are in, at an acceptable condition, then if there's a situation in a flood where that levy fails, that the Corps of Engineers will come in and pay 80% of the cost to re rebuild that levy or fix the levy in, in whatever fails about it. So if, if they're not in that program, then 100% of that cost is left up to that local levy district. And quite frankly, a lot of them are barely getting enough revenue to maintain and operate the levies as it is. So what the task force is doing is, all right, how can we get those levies back up into the course program? And so we've been assessing all the levies of up and down the Arkansas River. Now we're concentrating on the Arkansas River right now because it's just pretty overwhelming with all the levees we've got on all the other rivers in the state. So if we focus where the flood was this last time, we got a pretty good pressure check of that situation. So evaluate those levees that are not in the core program. What will it take to get them back in that program? Are the assessments uh, at a level where they would sustain it if it were in the program, and what's the difference? What does it cost to get them up to that level and you know, see what our recommendations to the governor will be at the end of the day? Does there need to be some, some state money from somewhere come in to help? Does there need to be some laws changed to enable those levy districts to do a better job? Is there opportunities to consolidate some of the levies that depend upon each other's existence for, for that support each other in a system? Do they need to be consolidated? There's a lot of questions that we're still working on, but the task force is really doing a good job of of communicating and uh, going through good ideas and bad ideas and sorting them all out. Now, 
What kind of a timetable are you all looking at? Or, or maybe a better question is, what are next steps okay. from here? Well, the Levy Task Force is actually meeting this Thursday over uh, on the St. Francis uh, Levy District. That's one of the models for the nation. And so uh, I think it's good to have a field trip so everybody understands better what we're talking about with regards to the levies. But uh, we're, we've got a uh, kind of an interim report starting to come together right now. And, of course, the governor has uh, set a deadline for the end of December to have that report back to him. So I expect that we'll have that report delivered to the governor sometime in mid-December so as not to push it all the way to the end of the year. Now, you've been involved in, in agriculture and in the farming communities and whatnot, not only in the current position you have, but as a legislator with, with issues, ag issues that come before you in different bills. And you've probably traveled a lot now and seen a lot what's been going on with flood damage. What was your initial reaction to this literally catastrophic flood? Well, I, th I think a lot of people uh, took for granted that the, the levees were, were there and they were going to protect them no matter what the flood was. And then we had this historic flood, and we certainly saw the the condition of the levees. And a lot of the county judges in those areas have really gotten their attention, and they're actively working with those uh, local levee districts now to, to try to address some of the, the failures that they might see at the next flood. As you move forward, um, talk about some of the, the partnerships that have developed in trying to deal with a monumental project. Well, you know, part of the, the, the partners that we've talked to a lot in this, in this process has been the, the Corps of Engineers. And uh, there were a lot of, you know, we, we've talked to some landowners and there's, oh, the Corps told us this or or we heard this about the Corps, and there's a lot of misconceptions about what the responsibilities of the local district are and what the responsibilities of the Corps of Engineers. And so that was one of the, the tasks that the governor put on the task force was to try to develop a better relationship between the Corps of Engineers and the local levy districts. And I think we've done that. I know we've gotten some really good cooperation with uh, the Little Rock district in particular that uh, manages most of the levees up and down the, the Arkansas River. Now, mention also the fact that there is, um, levees are levees, but levees are different. There mm -hmm. are federal levees that the Corps obviously built for, for flood control, and then there are the local levees that are out there. And, and I think what you were mentioning earlier in the discussion here is that those local ones the key is to have them core approved if they're going to be able to draw on federal core dollars to help rebuild them. Um, if they weren't approved on the front end, they have to absorb the cost some way, somehow. Right. You you know, there's there's <coughs> small levees that were built for different reasons up around the, uh, the river from local farmers or local communities or what have you. Some of the levees were built by the Corps of Engineers initially and then turned over to a local levy district for them to maintain and operate. You know, we, uh, we often think about the, the levy system as part of the Corps, but the levees are actually not protecting the river, they're protecting the landowners behind them. So the Corps gives them that, you know, they, they're there to help maintain them, but the locals have to do their part. So. Uh, 
they're there to help in the disasters, but the maintenance and operation needs to stay with the local folks. Is there any idea, you may know the answer to this, you may not, what percentage of levees that are out there that have been affected by these floods are are the private ones, so to speak, versus the federal ones. Have you guys gotten a handle on that yet? You know, a great many of them, and I don't have that number. That's something that one of the subgroups is working on, is getting an accurate inventory of what is uh, a private levy, what's a federal levy, what's a part of a levy system, how all of them are, especially up and down the Arkansas River. Uh, trying to, to sort it out and to see who's responsible for what. Levy miles. Do we have, I'm sure there's a committee that's looking at that too. How many miles of levees do we have in the state of Arkansas, let alone just, you know, along the Arkansas River? You know, I, I don't know that I've heard that number either. I think there's somewhere between three and 400 individual levees in the state on, on all the different rivers. Now, I'm sure during your time in the legislature, y'all had to deal with, with highway issues and, and the road building, whether it was on the state highways or the interstate highways and working with the feds on that. Um, I was at a meeting, the Corps of Engineer folks were there and they were, you know, touting the fact, um, which was good, that there was $115 million available, you know, to start this, this levy work. And I got to thinking in terms of highway miles on 150 million, and I kind of whispered to the guy next to me, "Boy, we wouldn't get a whole lot of highway built for that." And he said the same thing. He said, "You know, that's one of the big concerns. Will the money be there over time to to get our levy systems back up to speed?" You know, that's that's a real challenge, and and uh, these levees, a lot of them are really smaller. I can think of one in particular that's only about three and a half or four miles long protects about 4,000 acres. Well, you can imagine assessing 4,000 acres that is mostly low land, so it's gonna be mostly farmland. How much can you assess per acre per year that's gonna make a difference in maintaining that levy? So what is the answer to that? Well, it's that's tough, you know. It's, uh, it's kinda of like uh, every community wants an exit off the interstate, but it's just not feasible. So what is feasible with our levy system? What levies should we support and which ones should we, you know, maybe let, let go? That's, so, that's so, tough questions that we're going to have to answer. Right. So over time, there is a prioritization that's going to happen in regards to where the work will start. Um, and then you have situations, I'm sure, uh, like I say, you're drinking out of a fire hose probably and learning all this levy lingo, mm -hmm. but, um, as to just the red tape that's involved in the environmental assessments that have to take place as far as, you know, the Corps was saying, there are these things that have to take place before they're even dropping a shovel into the dirt. Well, the good news is we're not building new levees. We're, we're working on in areas where there's already levees. So those uh, uh, environmental conditions don't really exist there we're talking what we're talking about now is is getting the, the timber removed off the levees and we know the root systems damage the levees we know that some of the old gates and culverts in the in the levees are, are non-functional or deteriorated so those are the challenges we've got to find the money to fix so as far as the environmental and the engineering most of that was done years ago Final question for you, what's your confidence level as you've been through several months now in looking at 
the task in front to to get our levy systems back up to speed. You know, I'm, I'm really encouraged by the work that everybody on this task force has been generating. Uh, we've got some really good individuals who've taken a lot of personal time and gone and dug in courthouses to find out information and, and gone up and down the river physically inspecting some of these levees. And I'm, I'm really impressed with their level of participation. What I'm most uh, anxious to find out is uh, some kind of a dollar estimate is when we talk about what it's going to take to get some of these levees back up into the program. And uh, the Corps of Engineers has, uh, has recently said we've, we've got some initial numbers that, that we'd like to share, and so I'm, I'm getting ready to look at some of those. So hopefully they will be encouraging, and it'll be some numbers that maybe the districts and possibly the state can manage. Well, he's Bruce Holland, director of the Arkansas Natural Resources Commission with Arkansas Department of Agriculture. And Bruce, thank you for spending time with us on Arkansas AgCast talking about this very important issue of levees and, and restoring levees for our agriculture community and the safety of communities throughout Arkansas. Thank you. Appreciate it. Next, Ken Moore talks to Tommy Jumper of Delta Peanuts. Peanut production has expanded into Lee County, and areas south of I-40 in Arkansas. So Ken asked Jumper to discuss his business model and why he believes Arkansas will become a major player in peanut production in the U.S. for years to come. I'm Ken Moore and today I'm over here in Mariana at the home of Delta Peanut and the new Delta Peanut buying point and the peanut harvest in Lee County is well underway now and I'm very privileged to be able to sit here and visit just for a few minutes with Mr. Tommy Jumper. And Mr. Jumper is the uh, chief executive officer of Delta Peanut. And, and Mr. Jumper, tell us, peanut production is about to just really expand and move to a whole new level. Some farmers in, in northeast part of the state have been growing peanuts for a number of years. But what you have done, and because of your business model, uh, we're about to see peanut production become something that is very, very important. We're going to become a major player for the vendors who want to buy your peanuts here going forward. So tell us about the genesis and your business model and how Delta Peanut came to be. Oh, I'm, I'm happy to do that, Ken. Thank you for spending a few time, a little bit of time with me. So um, the genesis, a lot of times people ask me just how, where, where did the idea start? And it really started so long ago that I don't remember the very first day. But I really began to vet this probably seven or eight years ago. My career was in the seed business, and so I was very familiar with agriculture. I was very familiar with the peanut business because I had friends and I did business down in the southeast, and I had this infatuation with peanuts. I knew that they would fit our climate, our soils, and our rotations back at home. I just needed to find a way to put the business together uh, in an efficient way for the right stakeholders. And I landed on a business model where our, our farmer neighbors um, would own the company itself. I loved that because what I was actually doing was sponsoring them an opportunity to vertically integrate off their farm. But even more importantly, I was letting them build equity in something that they could then uh, use for consistent transgenerational growth of their farms. And so I, I love this business model, um, and 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 it fits so well because our growers here had been growing peanuts long enough to know that we could dependably grow very high-quality peanuts. We're really blessed with uh, relatively sufficient amounts of irrigation. 
And peanuts have moved around the country a little bit following water, but then water gets to be a limiting factor, like in West Texas. But for for our for our peanut business to grow and to uh, and to accommodate the acres that Arkansas farmers wanted to put into production, there had to be shelling facilities here. Yes. Some some of the big companies that they're they're great companies and they were they were contracting peanuts up here, but they had to be transported to South Georgia or West Texas to be shelled, mm-hmm. which made our peanuts up here very desirable. And it helped them mitigate their production risk, but they were very expensive also. Because a trip of farmer stock peanuts from Mariana here today, if you were to haul them to South Georgia, you're going to invest $100 a ton in freight. And so I knew that, I knew that the acres were capped. They, they were limited. There would be a certain amount here for risk mitigation, but there would but there would never be an opportunity for farmers to raise all the peanuts that they wanted without someone building a shelling plant here mm-hmm. so the the buying point that you see is obviously meant to take peanuts at harvest and here the USDA grades them the we we put them in the loan and we dry them if they need dried we clean them if we need cleaned and we store them here but but the real engine behind this is also in Arkansas and it'll be completed next spring. That's the shelling plant. Um, and so the shelling plant is then that point that that elevates those elevates the value of those peanuts for these farmers, so that I can sell them to uh, the really iconic brands that we all know. And we have several of them that are very close to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we represent a really logistical advantage to people like J.M. Smucker, who make Jif peanut butter in Memphis to people like Hormel, who own the Skippy brand in Little Rock. Planters is over in Fort Smith. But but then there's even more. There's a company called All Good Foods over in Kentucky that co-packs for lots of brands and private label. And so th- they have welcomed us into the market. W- one of the questions I got early on was, can you sell these peanuts? Well, I-, I could trick everybody and say I'm a super salesman, but that's not the case. These people are finding us. We have quality. Yes. We have logistical advantages. We have irrigation that really negates the risk for aflatoxin in our peanuts when compared to dryland acres all over the southeast. So I'm trying to harness some advantages uh, that, that we have um, on behalf of our 70 farm families that dug really deep in their pockets and they coalesced around one big idea. Uh, I'm just trying to harness the advantages that we have for them. I know the Feltons have been growing peanuts for a little while over here, but they've been about the only ones that saw and understood the uh, opportunity here in, in the Mariana area. But now you've got others uh, like the Ramey Styles and others. You mentioned 70 farm families who said, yes, I'll take a chance. I'll believe in your business model, and I see the benefit of this for me. And talk about how many of these have already been growing cotton. This is one of our prime cotton counties in Arkansas. But the soils are so great for peanuts. And then when you put peanut into per, in a rotation with cotton, there are certain uh, advantages for those cotton farmers. Oh, you're exactly right. And, and we've even we've measured some of those. It's it's e- <coughs> it's easy to anecdotally say oh, we raise cotton yields or or it's good for the soil or it's this. But we've actually measured that. And, and you're exactly right. Peanuts are a great rotation with cotton. 
and depending on commodity prices, if those guys insert corn into that rotation, that's fine too. But cotton and peanuts are a natural rotation. They like the same soils. Um, they're farmed, except when you get to harvest, they're farmed with the same kind of equipment. Um, they both benefit from the same practices like irrigation and management. They are a, um, a traditional non-GMO crop. So weed control is a little different, and we actually break that cycle that leads to resistance to some of our herbicides. Um, and, and we've measured behind that a reduction in things like nematode populations when, mm-hmm. when peanuts are put into production. And the resulting, uh, the, the resulting yield in the subsequent cotton crop behind these peanuts is literally two to 300 pound increase. So now you have your, your growers, you have those who've bought in and helped make Delta peanut a reality here. This buying point is evidence of that. And so you're going to have an exciting grand opening next year that you were kind of telling me about. Talk about that. And then the future of peanut. Peanut production is going to become a very important value-added crop here in Arkansas. It is, and 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 I'm uh, I'm extremely confident in our stability. Uh, we've got we, we do have we've got the fundamental things in place that give us as Delta Peanut the right cost of goods, the right transportation. We've got all the fundamentals necessary for us to uh, to stay. Now, you know, you and I talked a little earlier. Uh, we're building a shelling plant that will eventually have that will eventually have the capacity to shell 180 to 200 thousand tons. When we started this business, we knew that it takes a long time to build a shelling plant, so we intentionally only sold enough ownership to raise uh, 90,000, 85 to 90,000 tons this year, depending on how they yield. Now, by the way. Um, some of these peanut yields are coming in astronomically high this year. The crop's great, and I heard a four-ton yield this morning, which wow. is which is phenomenal. Wow. And by the way, uh, if you look at the state yield averages, um, we have a distinctly higher state yield average than the states that we compete with in peanuts. So uh, this is a good place to raise peanuts. But um, the grand opening will be a lot of fun, and, and it'll be populated with all those iconic brands that you see in your pantry. Um, and then we're going to continue to sell additional ownership over time. I, I built the business model as if we would we would we would continue to sell ownership. And when when I talk about ownership, one share of ownership represents one ton of peanuts, and we pair it up that way. But uh, we sold we sold eighty five thousand units of membership the first year and raised twenty six and a half million dollars. That was what we needed to have a healthy debt-to-equity ratio to complete the project. But we'll continue to sell because we have another 90,000 tons worth of capacity. And as we'll do that over the next three- to five-year period of time as we can put additional infrastructure in place with additional buying points, and, and we'll expand this buying point. We're building two warehouses here this year, but the plans already have three warehouses on site. So... So wow. we'll we'll expand these, but we'll also we'll also add another buying point or two, and 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 we'll facilitate that growth partly internally and partly externally. Uh, it dawned on me when I was drafting the offering memorandum and the operating agreements that while you're exactly right, uh, Jason and Trent Jr. here have been raising peanuts for a long time. 
they already have equipment in place. They have their rotation set. But a lot of the members are brand new to peanut production. And so they had to buy equipment as well. Mm -hmm. And they had to begin to manage peanuts into a rotation. So they started with a very modest number of acres. But their intention is to double or triple those acres over the next three to five years. And I thought it only fair that if they if they bought in initially that that they have the first right to refuse ownership when we sell to the second and third and fourth the uh, raise right so there's existing i just thought it would be wrong if a guy bought in for three or four hundred acres worth and he wanted to put a second combine on next year and i'd already sold all the membership to everybody else so we facilitated his growth internally before we actually take new membership but in the end i expect that we'll sell um we'll sell enough membership in this organization to um to dependably bring us that 180 190,000 tons of peanuts every year wow well stay tuned for all of our listeners uh, who are listening to this conversation uh the future is is really exciting here with delta peanut and peanut production in arkansas and We'll look forward, Mr. Jumper, to being with you for that grand opening, and and that'll be a red-letter day. I'm sure you're going to have a lot of the uh, agriculture and uh, business leaders of Arkansas there to celebrate with you and and thank you and congratulate you for your uh, vision and your model for helping make peanut production something very important for Arkansas agriculture and the state as a whole. Well, thank you, um, and and I would really be amiss. You're right; that grand opening will be, a, be an exciting day, and it'll be populated with a lot of people. But this this really could never have come to fruition unless a lot of other people wanted it to succeed. So along the way, just when I needed help, um, somebody stepped up, and and there it's certainly not me. Um, but the the farmers banded together and shared the message. The bankers came alongside. Um, the politicians have been supportive. And so along the way, I think people are beginning to realize that, sure, we're we're going to employ 130 pe- people. That's 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 great. But but that's really a small part of the value that this thing will actually add back to Arkansas economy. Um, it it it. We're already having uh, cold storage people call to say, can we come to town and build extra cold storage? Freight companies are establishing terminals. Uh, I think a lot of people began to see that it was good for our state. It was good for agriculture. And once again, agriculture is leading the way toward economic, real economic growth in Arkansas. Well, Mr. Jumper, thank you for sharing your story uh, with us and giving us a few minutes of your time. And we'll look forward to kind of following along as this thing progresses i've been visiting with mr tommy jumper here the chief executive officer of delta peanut at the new buying point here in mariana on this edition of arkansas agcast finally greg patterson interviews 15 year old chloe mabry of farmington who had the grand champion market hog at this year's arkansas state fair he also talks to ffa state advisor chris backus about his show animal process and how it benefits students this is greg patterson and on this edition of arkansas agcast we've got chloe mabry and she chloe's from farmington she's a 15 year old and she has the grand champion market hog storm this year at the state fair how excited were you when you were picked as the the winner 
I was very excited. This is the first time I've ever been chosen as grand or reserve for Arkansas State Fair, and it was very exciting for the whole family and me. So, so what was the reaction of you and your family when you found out? I mean, um, like, were you out there and did you scream or anything, or did they of, scream? Lots of crying, um, yays, hugging, <laughs> lots of that. <laughs> and and I think you mentioned earlier when we were talking, you've been doing this for like 11 years. Yes, I have been doing this for a while. This is my seventh, seventh or eighth Arkansas State Fair. And And for you... A veteran of 11 years now. What do you like most about showing animals? Um, probably just getting to travel around the world with my family. Um, family's really an important factor in this, and I love getting to see. I've met so many different people from so many places. It's just really neat to get to do all those experiences. So tell us about um, your your hog, Storm. What's Storm like? Um, Storm's a very special pig. He has a great personality. He's very loving and caring towards people. Um, he can be, um, he loves food. He really <laughs> loves food. A hog that loves yes, food. Yes, loves food. He loves it. What's what's uh, Storm's favorite thing to eat? Or does or is he is he picky at all or does he just eat anything? He'll eat about anything you give him. <laughs> He's very picky on what feed we give. He only eats the feed that we give him. Like he eats lots of feed. But when we were taking a picture, he wouldn't eat the cake mi- cake mix. <laughs> oh, Most he wouldn't eat. The- eating, he wouldn't eat the cake mix. I was like, that was very surprising. Wow. So, do you have friends that also show? Yes, I have ton. I have a lot of friends, and it's a lot of friends here that show too. Like, I know about every person that's in the sale today, and I've been friends with them for a while, or met them this year. Now, which organization are you involved with? As far as is it FFA? Is it um. I just started FFA two years ago. I'm probably more involved in FFA, but I'm also in a 4-H group. Oh, okay. That sounds good. Now, um, you've been showing hogs mostly. Have you showed any other kind of animals before? Um, I've showed um, I've showed a lamb, and I've also I've showed a goat and a steer and a heifer, but they weren't mine, but I've still showed them. Okay, remember all the way back to the first time you were showing an animal, if you remember that far back. What was the result? What happened? Um, my first time, I think I remember showing, was in Woodward, no, Chickasha, Oklahoma. It was the NJSA Southwest Regional, and it was my first pick, and I had a big York guilt. And I think I didn't win, but I didn't do bad for my first time. I think I had, like, second or third in class, maybe. That's pretty good. That's yeah. pretty good. Okay, so 15 years old, you still have... How many years of high school? Um, four. Okay, so you're you're right at the beginning of high school. Yes. Are you going to continue showing? Yes, I will continue showing all the way through my high school career, and I have thought about showing my freshman year in college. Okay. Any idea what you want to do in college? What What would you want to major in? Um, I've won ever since I was little. I've wanted to major in vet, but I've always I've kind of the older I've gotten, I've kind of learned. Um, animal chiropractic or just um animal science in general just anything i want really i would love to do anything with animals which is what i plan on doing. okay and then um do you come from a farming family um my mom wrote my mom growed up riding horses and trail riding with her parents and my dad growed up um 
showing pigs, which is where I got that from. And his brother showed pigs and lambs. And so, yes. Any chance of you becoming a hog farmer or or any other kind of farming? Yes, probably a very well chance of me becoming something <laughs> like that. <laughs> so you just love the whole yes, thing? Yes, I love it all. What's your favorite part of it? My favorite part might be getting to spend all that time with my family. Yeah, yeah, that would be wonderful. Yes. And tell me if you know of any any funny stories about Storm that happened in the time you've been raising him. Um, he's very he's scared of like he's a big pig and he's kind of a baby. He's scared of a lot of stuff. Like, he was, I was showing him, and he'd jump at everything. It was really, it was kind of funny, but it wasn't funny. But you wouldn't think a big pig like that would be scared of as much stuff as he is. So so if there was a loud noise or something, Storm was going to kind of, like, jump a little bit and be scared? More than likely, yes. Does Storm travel well? Yes, he travels very well. He loves the trailer. He'll just get in the trailer and lay down and get in his shavings, and he'll lay down till we get wherever he'll he usually um he settles about anywhere we put him you know it's interesting because if you read some of the research they say that uh pigs are pretty darn smart yes they are very smart so so when that trailer's uh he, he knows that he's fixing to go to a show or something like that does he ever show off um Occasionally, in the Grand Drive, he kind of threw his. I feel like he kind of knew. He kind of threw his head up and just walked around the ring like he knew what he was doing. So, so he did a little hog strutting. I guess. <laughs> I guess that's what you call it. Well, this is Greg Patterson, and on this edition of Arkansas Cast, we've been talking with Chloe Mabry, and she raised the Grand Champion Market Hog at the uh, 2019 Arkansas State Fair Storm. Chloe, thank you so much for taking time to talk You're with welcome. us. This year, our grand champion market hog was Storm, was exhibited by Chloe Mabry. Now, Chloe also won the senior showmanship division. I've always been just as proud of that as showing the grand champion animal. Chloe's a 15-year-old ninth grader from Farmington, junior high, a member of Farmington MFA. Her parents are Jeremy and Don Mabry. They reside near Fayetteville in Washington County. This is your grand champion market hog. All right, big round of applause. You bet your grand champion, Mark and Hogg. All right, head here, head here. Let's go to work hard. Yeah, now, I'm going to get a good, a good, a good, a good, a good, a good, a that's more to hand, I'll promise you that, Tyler. Hey, one thousand, two thousand, five thousand, six thousand dollars. Here we go, six thousand. Let's go up. Here we go, six Eight 
Ray Townsend, Farm Bureau. The spotlight is on your table. We're under, uh, under the money, Nick. Yeah, under the money. This is Greg Patterson, and I'm with Chris Bacchus. He is the state advisor for FFA. And, and Chris, we're just coming off of last week's junior livestock uh, auction and sale uh, with the, the animals kids from FFA and 4-H have raised during the course of a year. And, and obviously that's the culmination of everything, but there is a lot of hard work that starts at the local level. And kind of fill us in as to uh, how a, a student who wants to show an animal even gets started and what the important factors are on that, that walk through that process. Sure. So, you know, we have a lot of students that come into an ag program and they, they know they want to show an animal, but we also have a lot of students who don't have any idea that they want to or, or what opportunities are available. And so that local ag teacher is the key to either fostering that um, desire to show one or, or sparking an interest in a student. And so that local teacher is the one that helps um, educate the students on what's available, what species are available to show, what opportunities there are to show that animal, and, and then the end result of that. And so, you know, when a student, uh, most of them will purchase their animals in the spring for the smaller species, and, and that ag teacher is critical in, in helping educate them on what to feed them, uh, how to the daily care of them, the routine for getting them ready to show. Uh, and then through the summer months, the ag teacher is the one that um, will order the DNA kits for state fair, for example, um, pulling the DNA, sending that in, getting the students registered for the state fair. And so that local teacher is really the key to, to making sure that the project is moving forward and the student has a good experience. So, so obviously the local teacher is the one that is critical to the support of the students wanting to show an animal. And then that local teacher though, you, you from the state level of FFA also provide support for that local teacher and explain kind of some of the things you do there. Yes, sir. So at the state level, we try to provide the support for continuing education for that teacher to, to keep up with the latest trends and showing. So for example, this year at our summer teachers conference, we had a presenter that focused on fitting of, of lambs. Last year we had one on fitting and clipping of goats. At our state convention this April, we had uh, partnered with Amigo Show Supplies and they brought in Kirk Stewart who um, did some, some lessons on cattle grooming and fitting. So so our, our role is really to make sure that that local teacher has the support and resources they need to, 
to have the knowledge to support those students through their project. Give give our listeners an idea of how extensive um, the FFA program is in the state of Arkansas. We're obviously a, a big time ag state, but let our listeners know. You know, uh, you know, ag teachers numbers in the state. Uh, the the how many show animals are even out there? Sure. So we've got uh, about two hundred eight ag programs in in high schools, and that's two hundred eighty around 286 ag teachers at the local level, um, and there's around 25,000 ag ed students in Arkansas. Um, in terms of number of show projects, um, I'm not sure that we've <laughs> looked at that number, but uh, I'm sure it's, it's quite a, quite a yeah, good it would be It would be pretty extensive with 25,000 kids. Not everyone's going to show, obviously, sure. but, but there's, it seems that the the show operations here in the state of Arkansas and the participation by the kids is pretty solid. It is, and we've got some really um, quality students that are competitive not only in Arkansas but across the country. Talk about the benefits um, that a, a young student is going to experience in going through showing an animal, whether it's a rabbit or whether it's a, you know, a, a large animal like cattle. Sure. So, so to me, obviously, students who are successful in the show ring, that's, that's a benefit. But more importantly, for all of the students that participate in that, um, it, it's, it teaches them responsibility. Um, it teaches them commitment um, because it doesn't matter if it's Saturday or Sunday. That animal has to be fed twice a day and it has to be cared for. Um, the, the dependability of that student um, is critical to making sure that that animal is taken care of. It also teaches them animal welfare and, and the, the quality care of animals, which is a increasingly important for our consumer base in production agriculture, and that we can communicate effectively how we're caring for animals in a humane way and, and that they are taken care of. So I think that's important. The other piece of it is is just the, the communication aspect, because a student who exhibits livestock, they're not just showing that livestock. They have to effectively communicate to a judge um, the best qualities of that animal. They have to be able to answer questions about their animal in a showmanship contest uh, and so I think the communication aspect of it is sometimes overlooked um, so it, all of that combined I think really makes the program valuable in, in helping a student build a resume after they leave our programs. Now when I was at the uh, fair last week for the auction I did get a chance to speak with uh, Chloe Mabry uh, who had the grand champion market hog and in addition to what you've already told us are benefits for the students as they bring an animal through a show program, she also said just the whole family atmosphere, the, uh, the camaraderie that she's built with other students from other places as she goes through the show process, uh, she said is, is a wonderful part of the whole experience as well. Yeah, definitely. It's, it, it makes it fun for the students when they're um, young and they're showing and they have friends at all of the shows but uh, the cool thing is that those friendships usually foster into relationships at the adult level where uh, the networking piece in our industry um, I still have friends that I showed livestock against whenever I was in high school that I can call today um, that work in different aspects of our industry so those friendships turn into a networking opportunity as well and so that that's definitely a key piece of it. Well, he's Chris Bacchus, and he is the state advisor for FFA. And Chris, 
Thank you for taking the time to be on uh, the Arkansas AgCast today and and fill us in, filling us in on uh, the whole showing of animals with FFA kids. Really appreciate it. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this week's AgCast. We will be back next Thursday with more interviews and news about Arkansas agriculture.